salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Welcome to our latest episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hey, everyone. Today, we're excited to be talking with our old friend and world-renowned photojournalist and documentary producer, Brian Scarry. Brian's probably best known for his breathtaking underwater photography that's appeared in National Geographic, many other publications, and books, including his Ocean Soul, Sharks, and Secrets of the Whales. Two of these, Secrets of the Whales and Return to the White Shark, he's produced as Disney Plus documentaries. His latest activities include an Ocean Odyssey exhibition in Paris, an immersive dive into more than 30 years of stunning images of the world's oceans, and an upcoming PBS series. But, Brian, we always like to start at the beginning. When did you first become aware of and connect with the ocean? Well, David, uh, first of all, great to be here. And Vicki, um, you know, I I grew up in Massachusetts. I, I now live on the coast of Maine. Even though I lived in Massachusetts, which was a coastal state, I didn't live on the ocean. We lived in a sort of central mass, little old um, mill town, an old textile mill town. But my parents would take me to the beaches in the summertime, you know, Cape Cod and New Hampshire, Newport, Rhode Island, those kinds of places. And I have my earliest memories in those summer days is, you know, riding home in the back of the station wagon, all sunburned and salty and um, sort of this mix of emotions inside of me. On one half, I was at total peace, having spent the day at the seashore. But another part of me was, you know, curious about what was lying beneath those waves, those dark ocean waves there in New England. So th that was probably when I first connected with the ocean on a personal level. I was, you know, reading National Geographic magazine, watching the old Cousteau documentaries and just loving the ocean. Um, when I was about three years old, my parents put a, a swimming pool in the backyard. So I used to put on my little mask and fins and pretend I was swimming with sharks and whales and so forth. But the ocean was from those uh, summer days at the beaches of New England. And when did photography come into your life? Did you always think you'd be a photojournalist? No, um, you know, in those early days, I just wanted to explore the ocean. I was interested in adventure and exploration, discovery, and the ocean seemed like a, a perfect place for, you know, doing all of those things. Um, so initially, I just wanted to be a diver. I thought that was the the passport to being a, an ocean explorer. So when I was 15 years old, I became a certified scuba diver. And, you know, initially that was kind of the end. I, I thought, this is great. Now I'll just keep diving and, and doing my thing. But it was maybe a year or two after that, I attended a, a diving show, a conference in Boston called the Boston Sea Rovers. This is a club that you used to put on and still does. It's the longest running dive show in the world. Cousteau was a member and, you know, Bob Ballard was the vice president and so forth. Sylvia was a member. So I went there as a teenager and I can remember having what I describe as an epiphany where I saw photographers and, and filmmakers presenting their work. And I, I decided that's how I wanted to explore the ocean with a camera. It was a very lofty dream. You know, I, I didn't have the resources to go out and do those things, but stayed with it. And, you know, eventually that, that became uh, a dream come true. Yeah. And so you got certified there in the cold waters of what Boston Harbor. <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, yeah. My checkout dives were in, stone quarries uh, in Massachusetts. And then 
my saltwater checkout dive was in Jamestown, Rhode Island, near um, near Newport, in you know I think October or something. So yeah, you know thick um, back then quarter inch wetsuits and uh, you know fins that were like very stiff and yeah. But um, I'm still diving in New England as we speak. I'll be out next week um, working on my my National Geographic story about the Gulf of Maine. So I'm still doing stuff here. My certification was in Somme Sound on Mount Desert Island in Maine in wow. April in a snowstorm. There you go. In a All wetsuit. Right. And it was so cold. So I really am impressed uh, that you maintain your cold water diving. It's <laughs> yeah, well, pretty you know wild. What? That's great, Vicky. Yeah, what a birth, bap, baptism by fire or, or the opposite of, of that, I guess. But yeah, you know, I think if you if you in my case, in the beginning in those early years, I didn't have the resources to, to travel globally, so I was diving in New England. I worked on a charter boat uh, that took people out to do shipwreck diving. Lots of shipwrecks in New England. You know, we dove the last German U-boat sunk in uh, in World War II, and I got to be proficient at that. I have a dozen dives on the Andrea Doria, and you know, doing all this kind of stuff, and learning to photograph in those difficult conditions, I think served me well um, also, you know, throughout my career. But from the very beginning, you know, from 1980 or late 70s, I had set my sights on National Geographic, which was equally a very lofty dream. You know, there were essentially three underwater photographers working for the Geographic and they were firmly in place and didn't seem to be going anywhere and they were doing great work. But, um, you know, eventually, over time, I got my first assignment um, in 1998, and um, you know, and what was that? Uh, it was a shipwreck story, actually. Um, it was a pirate shipwreck, the very first pirate shipwreck ever to be excavated. Uh, it was on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It was called the Witta. It sank in 1717, and there was pirate treasure and so forth. They gave me a shot, and um, you know, I ended up making pictures. They were finding treasure, pieces of the hull. I figured out how to make pictures. The visibility was absolutely horrible. Worst I'd ever seen in my life, like swimming through egg drop soup. But um, I, had, I brought down these uh, movie lights that were, you know, run by a generator on the boat and uh, that I owned. And um, I switched to using negative stock, you know, instead of slides, which most photographers were using underwater that day. So it would give me a little more latitude. Anyway, Geographic liked what I was doing. And um Keep Bill was sort of uh, winding down his career at that point. They were looking for another underwater uh, photographer. So they made a decision to, they said, develop me as one of their regular shooters. They got me a little bit of grant money. I spent time working in all the various departments at geographic illustrations, photo engineering, you know, photography, uh, and learned how they operated. And uh, yeah, 25 years later, I'm working on my 33rd story or so. The vast majority probably... 29 of them, if not 30, are my ideas. So everything I come up with and propose, and if they like it, then I, I go do it. But uh, in 2001, so I started 1998 with the magazine. I did a couple of those shipwreck stories. I went to Normandy, did um, the shipwrecks of the D-Day invasion. And then in 2001, I might've got the assignment in 2000, but anyway, it was an assignment from the magazine to... Um, to saturate in the Aquarius habitat, which was off of Key Largo, Florida. It was run by Duke University at that time. It's where astronauts, NASA trained and so forth. And I was gonna live on the bottom of the ocean with a team of marine scientists for seven days in saturation and photograph their work. And, and really what they were doing was they were gonna be 
looking at the effectiveness of marine protected areas and tagging animals to see if they stayed within the boundaries of the Conk Reef uh, National Marine Sanctuary. It was kind of a hybrid, in some ways, story for me. So it was kind of like a shipwreck because it was this big 60-foot steel thing that I was living in and would photograph also to, to show that part of the story. But the, the real story was about the science and and being, you know, an aquanaut for a week. So that was kind of the transition. And then I started proposing my own stories. One of the first big stories that I proposed was uh, what became a cover story in 2004 was a story about harp seals in, in Canada. And I didn't realize it at the time. I proposed it really as a pure natural history story where I wanted to show a snapshot of the life cycle of these animals when they migrate down from the high Arctic to the Gulf of St. Lawrence to pup it around February or March. And I wanted to show that above and below the ice. Uh, very few photographers had ever gone under the ice, Bill Kurtzinger being the very first, actually back in the 70s. It turned into an environmental story because along the way, I, I did two seasons up there and I saw that not only were these animals being hunted, it was the biggest mass slaughter of marine mammals on the planet but the the bigger threat really was going to be the decline of sea ice due to anthropogenic climate change so that became the the focus of the story it became a cover story in 2004 and you know with that uh it got a lot of attention and, and i saw the ability to begin pr proposing more stories about environmental issues so for the next 20 years i sort of balanced um trying to do celebratory stories with more issue-based, you know, reporting on, on environmental problems in the ocean. I wanted to ask you, um, with the animals that you've been photographing, you had a mentor, I read about this one time, and he said, find photos of animals that humans could relate to, somehow making a connection to the human characteristics. And then you have that one seal with the hands folded. Yeah. Tell us about that inspirational comment and then how that has impacted your photography. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's a really great point, Vicki. And what, one of the things that I have always strived to do, in fact, my first book, my first monograph um, was called Ocean Soul. And the title for that book really was an answer to the question when people ask me, what is it you like to photograph most? And for me, it, it wasn't about big animals or small animals. It wasn't about um, temperate water or cold, icy polar regions or tropical. I loved it all. I loved everything in the ocean. For me, it was about the story. And what I really hoped to capture was that that inspirational comment, that sentience that can resonate through animals or places even, I would say, in the ocean, everywhere in nature, really, but the ocean was my beat. So I was looking for that life force that is is palatable or you know you can so palpable i guess that you can sense from these animals so whether it's a gray seal in the gulf of maine folding its flippers or you know a, a humpback whale that was the cover story for secrets of the whales my my last um, story in the magazine a couple of years ago you're always looking for that you can't predict it you can't make it happen um and you don't know when it's going to happen but i think like so many things in photography if you're prepared, right? I mean, the, the definition of luck is opportunity meeting with preparedness. So you, you, you're lucky if you kind of think about these things in advance. So 
Um, and time, you know, being patient, obviously, you know, but you're right. I mean, having that plant, that seed planted in your head um, in the beginning is is one of those things that will germinate over time. And, and I think grow to the point where you can capitalize on those opportunities frequently. Photographs, unlike your documentaries, photographs capture moment in time. You do series of photos. How, how do you balance the sense of wonder and warning? You know, you've got these wonderful sentient beings in our living oceans that are all in danger from our activities. Yeah, well, it is a balance. I mean, if you're referring to how do you balance, yeah, wonder and, and warning, I think I would say that we need to do both almost simultaneously and in an equal dose. You know, as a as a storyteller, I recognize that certain genres, certain approaches appeal to different types of people. There are different demographics. There are some people who will tune out if they see a dead shark in a net or a, a seal obviously being clubbed or, you know, struggling in the water because there's not enough sea ice so it it can nurse from its mother and put on the weight that it needs to work. So there are those, you know, difficult images that people will tune out. Others want to know that. Regardless, I think we need to know that stuff. I mean, if we if we only see the pretty pictures, the the celebratory pictures, the the beautiful images, we're not going to know that there's something that needs to be fixed. So uh, my argument is that we absolutely have to be sober about the realities of what's going on in the world's oceans or in, on the planet in general. However, I also realize that, you know, as Cousteau and others have said before him, we, we protect what we love. So you need to be reminded of why it matters. And and then for me, it's it's about connecting the dots, you know, helping people understand that we live on an ocean planet, that 98% of the biosphere is ocean where life can exist, that every other breath we take comes from the ocean and that we need to protect 30 to 40% of it. Today, we're at three or 4%, depending how you measure it. So even if you don't care about sharks, I think I would argue that you need to care that there are sharks. And, and let me show you why these animals matter. They they have personality. They are vital to whatever ecosystem they happen to inhabit. So I think the wonder and and warning balance is, is a delicate thread, um, a needle to thread, but, but both are important and you know, sometimes it's a little more carrot, sometimes it's a little more stick, I guess. What do you think some of your most impactful photographs have been of these animals when you're really trying to tell a conservation story? Mm. Well, you know, it's tough. I, I, um, I, I'm glad you didn't phrase that in the way that most people would. And that is, you know, what's your favorite picture? It's actually really a, a good question. What's your most impactful? You know, I would say, Vicki, that if I had to pick two that sort of represent opposite ends of the spectrum, I would say that um, there's a photo that I made for a, a story that I did in 2008 on right whales. And this, I started out as really it just being an endangered species story. And I wanted to focus on the North Atlantic right whale, one of the most endangered species today. There's 340 of them left. And um, and to, to draw a contrast with that beleaguered North Atlantic population, 
I wanted to show their southern cousins, which while still endangered are doing much better because they live further away from industrialization. Uh, the, the North Atlantic right whale lives from Canada Bay of Fundy down to Florida. They are urban whales and they get entangled in fishing gear and shit hit by ships and deal with pollution. Um, the other species, the southern ones, are, are doing better. They were once a million years ago, just one population, but they've separated over, over time. So um, I could have photographed the southern right whales by going to places like um, Patagonia, Argentina or South Africa, but I chose to go to a newly discovered population that had just been discovered around that time in the sub-Antarctic of New Zealand, a place called the Auckland Islands. And it was a very speculative trip. I didn't know if the whales would be there or what the visibility would be like, if they would let me close. There was no baseline. Um, but I chartered a boat in Dunedin, uh, New Zealand. We sailed down for three weeks in the austral winter with a team of scientists. And um, from the moment I arrived, these whales were extremely curious. And after diving alone the first few days and making a, a set of pictures, I had uh, a photo in my mind of a, of a diver, you know, kind of standing on the seafloor talking to the whale. And you can never set something like that up. But on this one day, it took a while in the afternoon, finally we found whales. And my assistant and I uh, swam down and I said, if the whale engages with us, see if you could just stand on the bottom um, and see what the whale does. And as if, you know, the whale had gotten the script, this 45 foot long, 70 ton Southern right whale came up and, and hung out with us for about two hours. And we were able, I got one frame where my assistant was standing on the bottom and this whale swam up the size of a city bus. And that photo became sort of viral. You know, I, I, I remember, I don't know, eight years ago looking in National Geographic had done a little video about how I made that picture. And it had like 20 million views back then. Um, but I think it it became impactful to your question because it was something we don't normally see. Here was a human being, uh, the scale of which was dwarfed by this giant whale, both on the bottom, one standing on the bottom, one hovering a few inches over the bottom. And it's like they're having a conversation. And I think it struck people as, wow, you know, that's that's something I haven't seen before. So it spoke to to me, this population of whales that had never seen humans before, at least not underwater, according to the scientists, and um, how all animals might have been at one time. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a photo I made doing a cover story on the global fisheries crisis that came out in 2007 about the problems of in industrialized commercial overfishing. And it was a photo of a dead thresher shark that I made in the Sea of Cortez, uh, Gulf of California in, in Mexico. And I jumped in the water on this gill net that morning and I was swimming along and I found this thresher shark that had just recently died and its eye was still open. And because it's a pelagic animal, it had those big pectoral fins. So as I was framing it up in my camera's viewfinder, it struck me as a crucifixion. And I thought that maybe that would give some empathy to, you know, 100 million sharks being killed every year. So it became the lead picture in that cover story. And it's, I've had it used by a number of conservation NGOs over the year to stop the shark finning trade and so forth. So I think those are two images that for very different reasons had impact. What are the moments where you've been nervous? Uh, shark seals, jellies, gear failure? Well, yeah, as, as you both know, you know, this is not without risk, uh, what we all do. And um, things do happen, even the best laid plans. There have been incidents, you know, with um, with animals, uh, but but those are, I would say, the exception. The the real dicey things that have happened to me 
have usually been just, I, I would say, user error, my fault, or or just things we we didn't anticipate, I didn't anticipate. So, you know, when I was doing that harp seal story, for example, I was diving under eight meter thick ice, you know, 24, 25 foot thick ice. But this ice in the Gulf of St. Lawrence was was not like a lake ice or something. It would have been smooth underneath. This is like mountains of ice underwater. So it's this coagulated, you know, frozen slush. It's a beautiful world, emerald green. It's like Superman's force, fortress of solitude. And the, the seals sort of navigate between there. So I would go in through what what's known as leads, these cracks in the ice or breathing holes. And we weren't using lines. And, and these seals are not like other pinnipeds that are interested in humans. These guys don't want to come near you. So I would sometimes use the big mountains of ice to, to uh, like a blind and I would hide there and wait near a breathing hole and then try to get a picture as a, a seal was diving in through the breathing hole into the water. So I had a, a, an assistant on the surface who was keeping an eye on my other camera systems. And then I had another guy, uh, Mario, who lived up there, really great ice diver and cameraman. He was in the water with me and his job was pretty much to keep an eye on me and the exit hole. And uh, on this one day, I saw this male harp seal, you know, beautiful harp pattern, the lyre pattern on its back. And I started swimming towards it. You know, it sort of went off and, and lost me. Uh, but then I was kind of far away and I was able to look up and I saw the exit hole closing. Uh, the wind and tide had pushed that hole closed. And now I, I finally had to find Mario. He wasn't immediately visible to me either. And I found him. But, you know, you're in... 28.5 degree Fahrenheit water. Um, I've got half a tank of air. Um, I'm wearing, you know, a heavy dry suit, attached gloves, not good dexterity, not good field of motion or range of motion. Um, and I've got to find another way out. I, I'm not going to push through 28, um, uh, you know, 25 feet of, of, of ice. Uh, fortunately, you know, we found another hole and, and got out. But that, you know, another time, you know, I was doing a story on the, the marine life of Ireland. I spent about 10 weeks um, all over Ireland. And I came up from a dive, my assistant and I, and there was a very strong current. Um, the sun was at our back, big Atlantic swell. The dive boat um, that I had charted, my, my own boat, uh, had the engine running. So they couldn't hear me yelling. And, and we got swept out to sea, my assistant and I. So again, wearing a dry suit, just our head and shoulders above the water, you know, uh, saw helicopters looking for us and boats as we're getting, you know, out, out in the middle of the ocean. And you go through this range of motion, you know, a, a range of uh, uh, emotions uh, where you start off it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, ha, 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 look at, you know, they're looking in the wrong place for us. And then you get angry. It's like, you know, come on, just throw a leaf in the water and let follow the drift. That's where I'm going to be. Um, and then, you know, you're wondering, are we ever going to be found? You just want to climb up on a rock and, and wave your arm. And I had a, you know, I had a four-month-old baby daughter at home. My wife had just had to go back to work. The first week I was in Ireland, you know, our, our nanny babysitter called and quit. Uh, she had some family problems. So now, you know, I'm, I've got all this stuff and I'm thinking, am I ever going to see my child again? You know, she doesn't know me. Um, you know, what a horrible ending this would be. Uh, fortunately, I got picked up by a fishing boat and, um, you know, we, we made it back. Okay. But so those are, those are oh, the, the really fishing boat was looking for you. You didn't have a big orange inflatable or any signals. Oh yeah. No, we had the safety sausages, the SMBs. Uh, and fortunately, What's working? He, he was, a, yeah, he was approaching 
uh, us with the sun at his back as well. So, you know, the, the, the people looking from the dive boat were looking into the glare. They would have never seen us, but he was, he was actually, he took a, a group of tourists out, this, this group of elderly ladies uh, that day to the Skellig Islands where, you know, Han Sol, uh, not uh, Luke, uh, Luke Skywalker, uh, it was in one of the last movies there right. uh, up in the mountains. Anyway, he, yeah, he, so he had heard on his radio, he saw the commotion, he saw helicopters on the horizon, turned on his radio, heard there was a National Geographic photographer <clears throat> that was either dead on the bottom of the ocean or drifting at sea. So he was looking, he saw my little SMB there and came over and this was my James Bond moment. Um, he had an old rope uh, ladder in his anchor locker. He thought it was going to disintegrate. He threw it over the side. My assistant went up first. And then I climbed up and this group of ladies on the back of the boat were all sitting there with their little cameras, you know, waiting to get a picture. So I, I climbed on the boat and I took off my mitts and then I pulled off my hood and I just said, scary, Brian's scary. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but, it, but inside, you know, I was like jelly. I, I was pretty nervous. So yeah, uh, you just uh, never know, I guess. I'm currently working on two projects about the Gulf of Maine, my native waters where I began diving, you know, many years ago, um, because it it has been identified as the, the epicenter or one of the epicenters of global ocean climate change. A, a scientific paper was published several years ago that said that the Gulf of Maine, this very historic body of water with rich biodiversity that in no small way, uh, for good or bad, fostered the colonization of America with the Basques and the French and so forth coming over in the 14th, 15th century for codfish and so forth. This body of water is warming 99% faster than the rest of the global. It's ocean. shocking when you look at the data on the Gulf of Maine. You, it, it's yeah. so surprising, but it, it it's really true. is. And, you know, it's sad for me to see this in my own lifetime, what I would describe as geologic change. So, I proposed it to Geographic in 2019, where it got approved as a, a magazine feature. And um, subsequent to that, I, I proposed it to PBS. I was actually doing an interview in Cambridge, Massachusetts at uh, WGBH Radio uh, for a new children's book I had coming out on sharks for National Geographic. And in the parking lot, I, I met an old friend who used to be a producer at National Geographic. He's the vice president at WGBH now for, for content. And we started talking uh, and he said, I was in the middle of Secrets of the Whales. And he said, what are you doing next? And I said, well, going to turn my attention to the Gulf of Maine. And he, he and his boss said, well, this is something we we should be doing here, too. So anyway, developed it there. And um, we've been working on it for a couple of years now. Um, I'm producing and directing the natural history underwater components of that. But, you know, we'll be looking at you know, the Native American voices and, and their baseline going back 10,000 years and and looking at coastal communities and how it all changes for them and mitigating the damage that is looming and, and existing now by, you know, maybe moving to ocean farming and and just looking at, at, at what's happening. And trying for me, it was about a, a, a way to give visual context to climate change here in the United States and uh, and help people understand that this is not something that's just happening in the remote regions, but it's happening everywhere in our own backyard. I refuse to say if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I believe in triage. We say yeah. what we can while we can, and this is the moment to to be doing that's that. A, that's a perfect answer, uh, David. Yeah, I used to, you know, a few years ago in interviews, I would say I, I remain optimistic. Then I became cautiously optimistic. I remember I was doing a joint interview with James Cameron for Secrets of the Whales, and somebody asked that question. He said, I'm a slightly optimistic pessimist. 
I'm looking forward to your documentary on the Gulf of Maine. After living up there for over 10 years and going to college, it's a place that I hold very dear to my heart. Um, Brian Scary, what a fantastic interview, photographer, conservationist. The interview has been wonderful. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Thank you very much, Vicki. Thanks, David. It was a real pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Not to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.